This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, in for Terry Gross. We always called each other good fellas. Like you'd say to somebody, you're going to like this guy, he's all right. He's a good fella, he's one of us. You understand? That's Ray Liotta in the starring role of Martin Scorsese's classic 1990 film, Goodfellas. Liotta died last week at the age of 67. We're going to listen to Terry's 2016 interview with him. In Goodfellas, he played Henry Hill, a wise guy, a member of a New York crime family who testified against the family after he was arrested and went into the witness protection program. Leota already had played a tough guy in his first major role in the 1986 film Something Wild. But he didn't always play tough. In the 1989 film Field of Dreams, he played Shoeless Joe Jackson, whose ghost shows up at an Iowa cornfield, which had been turned into a baseball diamond by a farmer played by Kevin Costner. And I did love this game. I'd have played for food money. It was a game. The sounds, the smells. Did you ever hold a, a ball or a glove to your face? Yeah. I used to love traveling on the trains from town to town. The hotels. Brass platoons in the lobbies, brass beds in the rooms. And it was a crowd rising to their feet and the ball was hit deep. Shoot. I don't play for nothing. Leota also played a range of roles in commercial and independent films and even played Frank Sinatra in the HBO movie The Rat Pack. When Terry spoke with him, he was starring in the NBC series Shades of Blue opposite Jennifer Lopez. They both played corrupt New York cops. The criminals pay off the cops, and in return, the cops let the dealers do their thing, up to a point. Here's a scene from an episode of that show. Leota's character, Lieutenant Matt Wozniak, is using a little coercion to keep one of the dealers in line. I need to remind you about our understanding role. Oh, I remember. You wanted to protect parks and schools from the drug trade. I trusted your assurance that no one else will push into that territory. This isn't about your turf. The dope's cut hot. I need to get it all off the street. You cracked the skull of my only lead. I don't think you're appreciating my situation. I can't look like a You don't dispense street justice in my precinct. Now, where is he? The girlfriend never gave him up. Tough girl. Don't worry. I'll find him. We both want what's best for the community, Lieutenant. I think you know what that's going to take. Let me explain to you how this works. We harvage you because you keep your business contained and you don't cause me any aggravation. We both know that if I burned you down tonight, some punk phoenix would rise from your ashes. I'm already starting to like him better. Is that for a reminder? That's Ray Liotta on Shades of Blue. <laughs> Ray Liotta, welcome to Fresh Air. You're going to go easy Thank on me, you. right? <laughs> You're going to be yes, nice to me, right? <laughs> I will. 
So I, had I think a, I was throwing ashes on him. You I were, like, yeah, yeah, and they were yeah. getting in his eyes and his nose and his mouth, and he was like choking and burning and not really liking he your particular form it. of interrogation. <laughs> so how did you get the part on Shades of Blue? Uh, it came to me. Um, I was looking to do uh, a 13-episode type show that there's so many of now, and Jennifer was already set. It was her piece, and... I read it, liked it, uh, heard that Barry Levinson was going to be directing it, who I really, really like, and I just decided to to take a chance and, and roll the dice. I wasn't sure what was going to happen, though. At first, I was I, I didn't know if I was getting into the, the J-Lo show or, or what it was, <laughs> so it was important for me to know that it was going to be more than just sitting behind a desk and giving orders and them going out and doing it. I wanted to make sure that I was involved in it. So you said that you wanted, you know, a 13-part series, which is why you signed on, one of the reasons why you signed on to Shades of Blue. What do you want from a series? Like, why did you want one? To get better movie parts, to tell you the, the God's honest truth. I, you know, I'm lucky enough to, to do and work in this business for years, but I wasn't getting the exact kind of parts that, that I wanted. Usually it wasn't about if I had the ability to do it, it was more about did I have enough uh, oomph behind me to put butts in the seats and or eyes on the on the tube. So I I just started seeing people's careers and the whole business changed from when I first started. There were a lot of people that were getting movies that were coming out of television. So that really was one of the main reasons that and just to have a consistent paycheck and to work to, to do independent movies year after year, never knowing what they're going to be is exhausting, frustrating. There's never much money in it. So I can understand your frustration with independent films like the independent film from just a few years ago, Killing Them Softly. is a terrific performance and very few people saw the film. So it must be frustrating to put in such a good performance, and then not many people see it. But, of course, when you signed up, you don't know if it's going to be a big cult film or if it's just going to disappear. And a lot of times, though, a movie would come along and I got to play the the lead part where I wasn't the maniac, but it was a smaller <laughs> type independent movie. And I've always felt that part of this game is to play as many different parts as you can. So I had more opportunity in smaller budgeted movies to play the, the leading man, to get the girl without having to choke her first. So it served a purpose in terms of acting. And I never took any of the, the smaller independent things for, for, I never just phoned it in. I still went all out and studied and did homework uh, for every movie I've ever done. So I'm sure you've spoken about Goodfellas many times during your career, but bear with me while I ask you a few questions about it, because I know our listeners will want to hear about it. Is that okay with you? Sure. Swell. So Goodfellas, of course, a 1990 film. You played Henry Hill, um, and it's based on the Nicholas Pileggi novel, Wise Guy, in which Henry Hill tells his whole story, starting from when he's a kid and he aspires to be like the small-time gangsters in the neighborhood. He ends up being their assistant and ends up being, you know, really like a part of that whole ring and ends up in the witness protection program. So I know that you listen to tapes of Henry <laughs> Hill. 
Um, yeah. What what interested you in his voice? What were you able to pick up from? And I assume that were these FBI tapes? Was this being him being debriefed by the no, FBI? No, these were the tapes of that that Nick Pelleggi gave me. Oh, uh, for his when book. he was writing the uh-huh. book of it, right? So he talked to Henry for hours. And once I got the film, I went and talked to Nick to just to start to get, you know, start doing my homework. And he said, here, listen to this, these tapes. Well, I listened to the tapes of Henry and I listened to him every day. And that was back when everybody, everything was on cassette. So you, you would just put, I just put it in my mother's car and listened to Henry for hours. The problem was all he did was eat potato chips. And if you've ever listened to anybody eat potato chips for like hours as he's talking, it's an extremely annoying thing. <laughs> but that's basically what I did. So that told me a lot about Henry was he was just going to do what he wanted to do. And the biggest thing that I, that I learned from it was just how casual they were, how, how casual Henry was about what happened. It was just like he was telling a story of of what his kids were doing how they played in 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 a park except they were talking about you know people getting killed or beaten it was very very casual though so your voice is very important in this because you're you're not only portraying the character on screen but you're, you're doing voiceover throughout the film so let me play the opening voiceover of the film in which uh this is a flashback where your character is young but you're doing the voiceover as an adult looking back on your childhood Okay. To me, being a gangster was better than being president of the United States. Even before I first wandered into the cab stand for an after-school job, I knew I wanted to be a part of them. It was there that I knew that I belonged. To me, it meant being somebody in a neighborhood that was full of nobodies. They weren't like anybody else. I mean, they did whatever they wanted. They double-parked in front of a hydrant, and nobody ever gave them a ticket. In the summer, when they played cards all night, nobody ever called the cops. That's my guest, Ray Liotta, in Goodfellas. It's just so interesting to me how low his sights were set as a kid. You know, like... He wanted to be the guy that could park, like double park in front of the hydrant, and you're not going to get a ticket. You know? uh, yeah, well, <laughs> like, I guess um, different strokes for different folks. I guess when you grow up like that, when you're growing up in New York and your father isn't making a lot of money to see people who are uh, have a lot of money and power, and then, you know, that, that kind of shows a power that they're parking wherever they want cause when you're not supposed to do that. That really influenced him a lot. So listening through the potato chips, when you were listening to the tapes of Henry Hill, did you pick up a lot of slang that he used? Because there's, you know, expressions through the film that you assume are a part of that, you know, wise guy culture. So did you pick up like language kind of things that you thought were really interesting? I'm a big believer that the script is your Bible and the script and a good one tells you everything that you need to know. And I just committed to the script. I learned everything. I learned that I, I, I had so much time to learn it. And I was home in New Jersey because my mother was sick at the time. Uh, and, and Marty was just getting ready to launch Last Temptation of Christ. And, and so the movie was pushed. So I had more time. So I just listened to the tapes, but I didn't get anything in terms of slang. I just know what it's like being an East Coast person, being from New Jersey, but also just the script was great. What what Marty and, and Nicholas wrote was 
you know, I, I just committed to that, to the words that was on the page. Martin Scorsese was very close with his mother and even did a documentary about his mother. I assume he really understood what it was like for you to have a mother who was very sick. Um, yeah, I'm sure maybe personally he did, but I didn't really bring that to the set until, I mean, to be totally honest, my mom passed away in the middle of the movie, uh, and they told me on a particular day during a particular scene that I really had to get home that night because things were took a turn for the worst. And, you know, I broke down. I went into my trailer. I had to get myself together because we had to, you know, get ready and still do the movie. And, and I had a scene to shoot. I grew up only 45 minutes from the city. So the, the, the crew, Joe Pesci, they came to, to my mom's funeral. It was really, really... Uh, it wasn't special, but it was special and, and, and nice. But that's that's the reality of what happened. Actor Ray Liotta speaking to Terry Gross in 2016. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. When we left off, we were talking about Goodfellas. And there's a very famous scene, the laughing scene, in which you and a bunch of the small-time gangsters that you hang out with, including... Uh, Tommy, who's played by Joe Pesci, you're at your favorite like restaurant, bar, hangout. You're at a table, and the Joe Pesci character, Tommy, is telling this story. Everybody's laughing at the story. You're laughing the hardest. And after the story ends, he looks at you, and he says, what's so funny? So let's play part of that scene. And the scene starts with you just laughing a lot at the end of his story. <laughs> oh, Pete! Oh, oh, hey, I wish I was big just once. <laughs> You're the big cops. You're really funny. You're really funny. Uh, what do you mean I'm funny? Uh, it's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? It's just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's... You know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Funny how? What? Just, you know, you're you're funny. (laughs) You mean, let me understand this, because I don't know, maybe it's me, I'm a little maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? I'm not just... Do you know how you tell a story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the f*** am I funny? What the f*** is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get out of here, Tommy. I almost had him. I almost had him. Yeah, stuttering prick yet. Frankie, was he shaking? I wonder about you sometimes, Henry. You may fold under questioning. It's Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci in a scene from Goodfellas. Um, So that's such a a crazy scene. Like, the Joe Pesci character is so crazy. Like, that's an example of it. Because you had every reason to think that he was actually threatening you because that's how crazy he is. There's a scene where he shoots the Michael Imperioli character in the foot just 
kind of for no reason, <laughs> and later just kills him. So what was behind that scene? Like, what's the difference between how that scene looked in the original script and how it looked on screen? That was totally improv during... Uh, Joe was telling us a story. We had two weeks of rehearsal, which is basically unheard of in, with making movies. But we had two you weeks of rehearsal. You mean because that's a lot of rehearsal or a little rehearsal? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a lot. And you don't usually okay. rehearse that, uh, like that. It was just Lorraine, Bob, Joe, and myself, and, and, and Marty. Um, and Joe is a great storyteller, and he was telling a story. That, that actually happened to him at a restaurant once and he was telling that story and Marty thought, wow, that would be a great place to put a scene like that. And, you know, Marty just, you know, he's a genius. So during rehearsal, Joe and I just played around with it and then we would keep working at it and shaping it. But then the whole thing was once we improved it and got it all down the way Marty wanted it, it was written and in stone and the improv became part of the script. What our listeners can't see is that in that scene, you're not only laughing loudly, but it's like visually you are laughing. Like your, your mouth is like way open as you laugh, like your whole face is shaped like a laugh. It's, it's as if like you're trying to prove like, this is funny. I am enjoying myself. I'm all in on this joke. Um, and it, it, there's even a collage on YouTube of your laughter through the movie. Was that a thing for you when you were making it that you thought that this character had to just like demonstrate that he thought something was funny and that he was enjoying <laughs> That's the life? Way I laugh. Is that the way you laugh? Yeah, if I think something's funny, I think it's funny, and I just, I just let it out. I, I'm amused by a lot of things. I love humor. I'm constantly joking around. It blows my friends' minds that 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 I've never been in a fight in my whole life, and I play all these kinds of characters. Um, It might seem exaggerated, but it's not. I just, you know, some people just have some very full laughter, full full of joy and have no shame or fear of of letting that out. So you told us about the potato chip eating interviews on cassette that you listened to of Henry Hill. Did you meet him in person, like in a secret location when he was in the witness protection program? No, I got a call from him after he saw the movie. Marty didn't want me to to, to talk to, to to him at all. He just wanted, we're just going to go by the script now because he knew that maybe uh, if I met him, he might embellish or or he didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and they, they just wanted me to, to just go by the script and not to meet him. Uh, I got a phone call that he wanted to meet me at a bowling alley in the valley with his brother. And I said, oh, boy, what the heck is this going to be? So I went, and he was there, and I met him for the first time. He had just seen the movie, and basically he says, hey, I wanted to meet you. You know, thanks for making me not look like a scumbag, (laughs) to quote him. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, did you really watch the movie? You pretty much were a scumbag. You ratted on your fringe. You were doing all this doing all this blow. You were beating people up. But I, I – uh, and then I would see him for years. He, he had a rough life towards the end of his life. Uh, and I would see him a lot of times in Venice, and he was just – 
you know, out of his mind on, you know, doing doing something, usually pretty loaded. I would see him leaning against trees or, 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 or just sleeping on the beach, and I would bump into him every once in a while. Probably your most famous film is Goodfellas. But people who are young don't necessarily know much ab- about anything except current films. And that's kind of the joke in an episode of Modern Family that you just guest starred on. And I want to play a clip from that. It's a really funny episode. Um, and in this episode, um, the three kids from the family uh, are, <laughs> they, 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 they want to treat their uncle to um, a special gift for his birthday. And it's kind of last minute. So the three teenage Dunphy kids uh, decide to buy a map to the stars' homes in Hollywood and take their uncle, who loves Barbara Streisand, to Barbara Streisand's house. So they take him there, and the uncle's played by Jesse Tyler Ferguson. They take him there, and instead of seeing Barbara Streisand in front of the house, they see you in the front yard, you as Ray Liotta. And um, but only the uncle recognizes you. The kids have no idea who you are. So uh, you're trying to tell the kids who you are by listing some of your biggest films. Goodfellas, mm. something wild. Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams. Never seen it. Okay, we're really not that old. Look, Ray Liotta is a very fine actor, and we have taken up enough of his time. So. Stop saying my full name like you have to keep telling them who I am. Well, so wait, you live with Barbara Streisand? Uh, you, you got the map. She lived here for about two months, 15 years ago. You think the bastards would update these things to reflect the current movie star owners? Thank you. Come on, kids. We're very sorry to have bothered you. No, 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 no. I don't don't want you to leave empty-handed. Come on in for a selfie. Oh, all right. Um, Okay. (laughs) When you see my movies later, you're going to realize that this is a special moment. Come on. And cheese. Cheese. See, that's an old actor's trick for a perfect smile. (laughs) <laughs> That's really Oda guest starring on an episode of Modern Family. That's really funny. So, but as far as what you were saying to begin with, in terms of kids knowing or not knowing, I do have kids that age coming up to me, mostly young boys, from their fathers. The fathers pass along music and and, and books or or whatever that 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 affected them when they were younger. You know, a lot of times you pass it on to your kid, so they pass on Field of Dreams to to their sons that, who play baseball, and some of the fathers that sh- you know show their young sons. Like I've had thirteen year old kids come up to me. And say, oh my gosh, you were so good in, in Goodfellas. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of parents do they have? That's a little too young to see that one. Um, I, I wonder if it's like a, a, a rite of passage, like an initiation thing into manhood, where fathers sit down their sons and go, son, you're old enough now to see Goodfellas. It's a great film. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. I don't know. All I could say is, I've, my career has been up and down. And I like it much better being up. And when it's up, part of that is people coming up to you and saying things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when I first started, like, I'm an actor. I don't want that sort of thing. Well, I just want to do it's all, all about the work. And that's just a bunch of BS. <laughs> uh, you want you want people to, to watch what, what, what you're doing. What's the point? There, there, there's a personal side to me. Of, of, of challenges as an actor that, that I like to take on myself and I do certain things that maybe nobody else knows why I'm doing, but it's all 
it all has to do with to grow as an actor. I, I, I really believe that, that it, you never stop learning and you never really ever get there. Just like in life, the older you get, the, you don't arrive at, oh, I'm sorry, I'm 60 now, I've arrived. It's not true. It just keeps going. You're always, you're constantly learning things if you're the type of person who stays open and current. My dad, who God bless him, just passed away at 98. He was hip to everything. Because he read, because he would watch TV, he wasn't he wasn't closed down about anything, and and I, he passed that on to me or the way to talk to people. You could have a conversation with anybody. He kind of passed that on to me. He didn't pass music on to me because I couldn't stand the ironic thing is I once played Frank Sinatra. And I remember my parents listening to that. And I, I said, oh, my God, who is this guy? Turn this off. <laughs> and then, then I end up playing him. And, and now I can't, you know, now if he's on, you know, I listen to the Frank Sinatra station the majority of the time. Yeah, you played Sinatra in the Rat Pack, the HBO movie, um, in which um, Don Cheadle was Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah, he was great. Yeah. Joe Mantegna was Dean Martin. And you had to play Sinatra. That's not easy. I turned it down a bunch of times. I, I wouldn't do it. I was I was first asked to play him by Tina Sinatra or or Nancy, one of the Sinatra, his daughters, back when they did movie of the weeks and they were doing a movie of the week of it. And I turned it down because it ju I just didn't want to do it at that time in my career. Then it came along, and it was during this down period of, of for me, and, and they asked me, uh, it was a HBO, Rob Cohn directed it, and he called and asked if I would play it. And I just said, no, no, no thanks. I don't want to take the on playing somebody that so many people knew that I just felt the judgment would be would be too much, and I was down in my career. So to take on something if it didn't work, uh, maybe it would make things worse. And then I, I said, "Wait a second! The whole point of me doing this is is to take on challenges, to keep growing up as an actor, and not really caring." One of the one of the biggest downfalls for any actor is fear of, of judgment and so if you start acting and you, you start thinking about and worrying about what other people are going to say about it you'll never really fully commit to, to who it is and what it is that you're playing so what makes people think of you when they think of sinatra did you sing before i, I started out <laughs> i started out i never ever wanted to be an actor it came time to go to college. My dad said, go wherever you want. I applied. I got into the University of Miami. This was 1973. And at that time, basically all you needed was a pulse to get in there. I got into the <laughs> University of Miami. I had no idea what it was that I wanted to do. So I just went, to, I was just going to take liberal arts. I got, I got to the, the 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 head of the line, and they said, because you don't know what it is, what you want to do, you're going to have to take math and history. I said, oh, my gosh, there's no way. I don't even want to be in college. I'm not going to take any math and history. Right next to the line that I was in was for the drama department. I said, oh, my gosh, that's it. I'll be a drama major. Well, it's the typical actor's story. I'm in line now to, to be a drama major because I think that's the easiest way to get by this year. And there was a really pretty girl. And she said, you're auditioning for the play tonight. I said, no. 
and she just berated me. Oh my gosh, how could you not want to do the play? You got to do the play. It's all about doing plays. What kind of actor doesn't want to do a play? So I went and I auditioned for the play, and it was for Cabaret. So then you had to sing and dance. I said, oh, I'm like, sing and dance? I'm a jock from New Jersey. What the <laughs> f- So she helped me out. I had seen Pippin. My parents took me to, to, to see a Broadway show, and it was Pippin. And there was one song in there, Magic to Do, that I really liked. I got up there, and all I can remember is the refrain, we got magic to do. We got, I'm just doing the magic to do, and I don't re- know how old you are, but there used to be a group called Freddie and the Dreamers. I remember. And I'm the, telling you there now. Was a dance, <laughs> there was a dance called the Freddie, so yeah. I started doing the Freddie as my dance because they're saying <laughs> you're supposed to be singing. You're supposed to be dancing as you're singing. <laughs> so I just said, did the refrain, and I did the Freddie, and... I got into it. And the first year, all I did were musicals. I was in the chorus uh, for, for my whole freshman year. But there was an acting teacher there named Robert Buckets Lowry, and he was great. They called him Buckets because he used to play basketball. Me being a jock from New Jersey, like, because when you first get into drama class and, you know, kids who, there's just different people in a lot of different ways. And I, it wouldn't be the people that I would normally hang out with and I didn't care what they thought because here I am thinking I'm just going to be here for one year it doesn't matter so for some reason I just really committed and listened to what Bucket said and thank God he was an acting teacher who was who was it it was it was kind of Stanislavski you know the the Russian director and, and, and an acting teacher and I just listened to what he said and kind of understood and just learned. And if it wasn't for buckets, I, I probably would have left. Well, I'm so. just going to savor the image of you doing the Freddie while singing a song from Pippin. <laughs> I did. The, the Freddie was know, just like that the story, goofiest not, dance ever. Yeah, it was crazy. See, I, and I've said that before, and I've done I've done that on talk shows. And you're the only person who I've ever talked to who remembers the Freddy. Yeah, it's kind of like you, you, you say your arms are at your side, you move them up parallel yeah, to the ground, up and, down, and then totally like kick your, your kick your arm to the le- kick your leg to the left and kick your leg to the right. It's almost like a calisthenic exercise. It's Ex- just exactly. The silliest. It was a novelty silliest. record with a novelty dance. <laughs> yep. <laughs> totally silly. Yep. Love it. Okay. <laughs> Actor Ray Liotta speaking to Terry Gross in 2016. More after a break. This is fresh air. Let's get back to Terry's 2016 interview with actor Ray Liotta, who died last week at age 67. His string of memorable film appearances included Something Wild, Goodfellas, and Field of Dreams. You started your career in a soap opera, Another World, which was one of the really, really big soaps. And we have a short clip we're going to play from that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I'll confess, this is from the internet. I haven't seen the whole episode. I can't really set it up too well, except to say that you play Joe Perini. This Joey is, Perini, yep. Yeah, and, and you were on the soap opera, I think, from 78 to 81? That sounds about right, yep. And you've just come back to town. You're talking to your ex-brother-in-law about your failed marriage to this guy's sister. And you speak first. Um, let me ask you something. Go ahead. Ask it. But you didn't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm just wondering. Why don't you call her? 
Find out how she's doing for yourself. So we got we got an annulment, right? That means like the marriage never happened, right? Never existed. But it did exist. And you're you're loving each other and, and caring about each other existed too. All right, what about all the craziness? You know, about me being married to an heiress, our fights over money or how to live. You know, if I want to annul that, I have to annul all the good times too. I disagree. Look, the girl I married was named Kit Farrell, right? She never existed. So everything that we did just didn't really happen. I'm not mad about it or, or anything else. That, that's just the way I want things. That's all. Okay. So that is so, so proper. You were married to an heiress who wasn't really an heiress. Well, <laughs> yes. But what happened was the love of my life, Eileen, died after I gave her a St. Christopher medal up on a, on, a, on, the, on a rock under the moon. I'll never forget the line. I, I proposed to her, with the moon and the stars as my witness, I pledge my love to you. So that's what, so, but she died. I went up to where I proposed to her. It was winter. I slipped, fell. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. My mouth is open really wide laughing. Uh, <laughs> Now that you brought that up, <laughs> and and I ended up in the hospital. I, oh, I, no. I get, I've been taken. And for weeks, I'm I'm being taken care of by this nurse. Well, like I just say, this nurse, I I end up falling for her. But she I, wait, lies to point, me. At this point, I don't know if you're talking about your life or the soap opera. This is a soap opera. Exactly. That's okay. See, see how good the soaps are. You can learn a lot. That's how natural you could be. And. I end up marrying her, but then eventually find out that she was the richest woman in America, and she said that she had a different name than what it is that she had. So me being, I was, I, I was played the nicest guy in the world, Joey Perini. That's why again, these 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 tough guys and something wild and all this stuff is kind of funny, because in the soap I was really principled and religious, and and because she lied to me, I got an annulment, and who wouldn't? So was she really wealthy, or was she faking it? No, man, she had cash. She's really cat. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I ended up I ended up realizing coming to my senses and realized that I loved her and we got back together and the our, one of our last scenes is we go off uh skiing to Switzerland and that was it. That's when I quit the show, so So if you don't mind my asking, I I know you were adopted at the age of about 6 months. Mhm. How important to you was it to find out who your birth parents were, or at least who your birth mother was? Was that was that an issue for you? And did you pursue that, and did that affect your life? No, I used to use it a lot being adopted, especially when you're going out with a girl or looking to find out a girl and say, "Hey, how you doing?" Out of the first five minutes, I'd somehow get in that I was adopted because I always looked at it as being given up. I never looked at it as being wanted. I couldn't get past being given up. And then I met a girl, got married, wanted to have a kid, but she thought it was was extremely important because I was born in the 50s and they didn't give you any information about health or anything. They, they, They had very, very limited information that they had to legally give you. So About your birth mother. Right. And at that time, on all the Oprah shows and Maury, and, 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 and this was 17 years ago, a lot of the shows were about locating friends, family, mothers, fathers. Every show was about that. Because records and were starting to be opened about that. 
I don't know. It just made good television, I guess. I don't know. I have no idea why they all started doing it, but they did. And uh, at the end of it was this this guy's name it was Troy. I don't remember the 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 his name, but Michelle, my ex-wife, called him, said that who I was, and people by then I was well known. You know, I was making movies, and he found my birth mother within a day, and. He called her and asked, God, this, I think I'm going to get emotional. I don't know how much I can really talk about this. This is very odd. Um, anyhow, I, we, we found her and I met, and I, and I met them and it was a trip. I've told this story before and they got mad at me for telling it because I told it on David Letterman. So it's a very weird, wild story. I found out I had four birth half-sisters, a half-brother, and a full-sister. Things I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm 44 years old, so I didn't know any of this stuff. You were 44 and then, all, yeah. Yeah, so, and also so, all this information came to me. So if it was a big issue in your mind emotionally that you were given up, that you were given up for adoption, and if that hung over you for a lot of your life, you felt rejected as a result, did you ever have a long talk with your parents about adopting you? Or was it like... They told you you were adopted, you knew you were adopted, and then you just didn't talk about it. That's it. Didn't, didn't talk about it at all. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure they told me I did, for, like, for show and tell in kindergarten, I told people the story that I was adopted. It never came up. It never really bothered me. I mean, I, the, the only time it would bother me with, with my parents is on Saturdays. They used to make us... Uh, clean you know clean the house and vacuum and 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 do chores and and i never forget saying the only reason why you adopted us was to do what do all this work so it never really bothered me and i never really thought about it that much well i i want to thank you so much for talking with us it's really been terrific to talk with you thanks actor ray liotta speaking to terry gross in 2016 the star of Goodfellas died last week at the age of 67. Next month, Apple TV Plus will premiere Blackbird, a true crime miniseries featuring the actor's final TV role. It was a part written especially for him by series creator Dennis Lehane, the author whose other TV credits include Boardwalk Empire and The Wire. Coming up, film critic Justin Chang reviews director David Cronenberg's first movie in eight years, Crimes of the Future. This is Fresh Air. The dystopian thriller Crimes of the Future, opening in theaters this week, is the first new movie in eight years from David Cronenberg. The Canadian filmmaker is known for such mind-bending films as Videodrome, The Fly, and A History of Violence. His latest movie takes place in a not-so-distant future and stars Viggo Mortensen and Lea Seydoux as a pair of performance artists who operate surgically on each other in public. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review. With its graphic images of stomachs being sliced open, organs being removed, and eyes and mouths being sewn shut, David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future is certainly not for the squeamish. But then why, as someone who self-identifies as squeamish, did I enjoy it so much? Maybe it's because while this director loves his gaping wounds and exploding heads— He wields his scalpel here with extraordinary finesse. There's a cool elegance and a disarming playfulness to this movie that pulls you in, even, or especially, at its most grotesque moments. 
And as with most of Cronenberg's movies, the pleasures are intellectual as well as visceral. Crimes of the Future isn't always easy to watch, but it's an awful lot of fun to think about. The movie takes place in a grim future, where humans have lost the ability to feel physical pain and have started operating on their own bodies. In this thrill-seeking world, surgery is the new sex. Something that a lot of people do for kicks, or even to earn a quick buck from live audiences. Others, like Saul Tenser, played by Viggo Mortensen, and his partner Caprice, played by Lea Seydoux, have elevated it to a form of avant-garde performance art. Saul has a medical condition in which his body keeps producing abnormal organs, which Caprice removes during their nightly shows. As grisly as these public spectacles are, the fact that the characters don't feel pain has a similarly anesthetizing effect on us as viewers. And there's a kinky pleasure to these scenes, too. Saul, lying in a high-tech coffin-like bed called a Sark module, clearly enjoys being sliced open by Caprice's remote-controlled blades. At one point, Saul is approached by a fan named Timlin, who's played by an amusingly twitchy Kristen Stewart. Do you think you would ever let me be a part of your show? Uh, just because I would love to find myself in that Sark module with you with the controls. I would attack that. We would definitely fall into the category of new race. That is where I live. One of the funnier things about Crimes of the Future is that it plays like a deadpan satire of the modern art world, in which Saul and Caprice must contend with rivals, fans, and even groupies. But not unlike Saul's restless body, the movie itself keeps mutating, switching genres and sprouting new ideas at will. The story morphs into a noirish mystery, complete with a nosy detective and a couple of power-drill-wielding femme fatales. It's also a bizarrely touching love story, and both Mortensen and Seydoux suggest a deep core of passion beneath their characters' clinical exchanges. The movie is also an ecological parable, in which human biology is changing dramatically in response to a rapidly decaying environment. One key subplot involves an underground group of eco-anarchists who have willfully altered their bodies so that they can digest plastic and thus consume much of the planet's industrial waste. There's a lot going on here, in other words, and Crimes of the Future spends a fair amount of time unpacking its own premise, though with a droll wit that keeps the exposition from sounding too much like exposition. As ever, Cronenberg and his longtime production designer, Carol Spear, are adept at telling their story visually. Some of their more memorable inventions are the devices that Saul uses to offset the effects of his condition, a giant bed that gyrates when he sleeps, or a mechanized chair that aids with his eating and digestion. None of this is exactly new territory for Cronenberg. He actually wrote the script for Crimes of the Future more than 20 years ago, but the movie never got off the ground until now. That may explain why it plays like a return to his career-long obsessions in films like The Fly and Crash, both of which were about how technology is literally reshaping the human body. In his 1983 horror classic, Videodrome, the characters kept saying, Long live the new flesh, a grim mantra that it's hard not to think about in Crimes of the Future whenever a scalpel touches skin. 
Cronenberg is asking quite sincerely, what are we doing to our planet? And how is that affecting the very composition of our bodies? And in turn, the next phase of human evolution? And not for the first time, he makes brilliant use of his regular collaborator Viggo Mortensen, who starred in earlier Cronenberg dramas like A History of Violence and Eastern Promises. In those movies, Mortensen played physically imposing gangsters. In Crimes of the Future, his character moves slowly and speaks in a raspy voice. There's great tenderness in Mortensen's performance, and he and Seydoux are very moving as two people who can truly be said to love each other, body and soul. That rush of romantic feeling may be the most shocking thing about Crimes of the Future. For all its blood and guts, this movie's biggest organ is its heart. Justin Chang is film critic for the Los Angeles Times. He reviewed Crimes of the Future, the new film by director David Cronenberg. On Monday's show, women's basketball star coach Dawn Staley. She played in the WNBA, won Olympic gold medals as a player and coach, and in April led the South Carolina Gamecocks to their second NCAA championship. Also, the author of the new memoir, They Said They Wanted a Revolution, by the daughter of Iranian activists and revolutionaries whose family fled to the U.S. after the execution of her father in 1982. Hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Balganado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C. Vinesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Cooley.